Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Somerville. So Chris, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? Yeah, very well. And uh, thanks so much for, for having me on. No problem at all, sir. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Chris? I am in Warner Yard, uh, which is the Playfair Capital offices, looking out on a fairly, uh, fairly gloomy London. <laughs> Standard. I think it's gloomy everywhere today, mate. Um, cool. So, Chris, the way that we start these podcasts is I get you to tell a little bit of your story. So, obviously, we've had a quick call before, so I know a little bit about your background. But, yeah, for the benefit of our listeners, mate, why don't you tell us your story? Yeah, of course. So, let me take it uh, all the way back to when I was, I guess, 17 years old, uh, sitting in the career advice office at school. And I was told, you know, Chris, you're, you're doing relatively well academically. Um, there are really three things we recommend you do. Uh, you become a lawyer, an accountant, or a doctor. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't like blood. Um, I'm, I'm competent with numbers, but I don't love them. So, you know, lawyer it was. Um, and I guess the next 15 years of my life was determined by that very short meeting with the careers advisor. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy isn't it that ge- was yeah. is that genuinely the case that's as much thought as you kind of <laughs> you kind of gave it in terms of breadth of careers yeah i, I think so um you know obviously my, my school wasn't obviously great with uh, career advice um <laughs> but, but i think at the time you know it, basically if you were a smart ish kid you know you were getting sort of a and b grades and you could go off to university you were pretty much sort of pushed down the route of being a professional yeah um, and that was it you know that's yeah. the, jobs to do and you know i still think that you know maybe my parents even would be like you know lawyer's a great job it's a solid profession so i was very much sort of on that treadmill and of course law firms Mm -hmm. are very good at it because they 
um, you have an internship with them where they pay you and it's all very exciting. Uh, they then pay your way through law school, which is obviously pretty expensive. Um, you then join them and they have a you know, pretty cunning, actually, these guys. They keep increasing your salary every year. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you sort of get a little bit stuck on the treadmill. But, uh, but that's kind of the route I took. Um, I don't regret it. You know, I learned an awful lot um, being a lawyer. I was at a firm called Weil, a New York headquartered firm based in London, doing private equity and M&A. So I kind of learned how transactions, uh, you know, come together. I spent some time in Silicon Valley, actually, uh, on secondment. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a good time. I would ideally have probably got out after two or three years uh, after I qualified. Yeah. Um, but I qualified in 2007. The financial crisis hit in 2008. And then, frankly, it was a pretty tough market. So I actually spent about three years doing restructuring work, mm. uh, mostly working on the over-leveraged buyouts I'd done for clients in the previous few years. But, um, you know, it was fine. It added a few more sort of strings to my bow. But um, by the time it got to sort of 20, 2012, I was definitely, definitely ready to leave. Mm. So then what did you go on to? So I was, uh, again, I guess it was a bit of serendipity in a way. Uh, I was sitting in a, actually, I moved law firms uh, just briefly, just to sense check that it was uh, it was actually the practice of law rather than the firm specifically that I didn't, I didn't enjoy. Um, and I saw a, a job advert popped up for, to, for a lawyer to become an investment manager, which is actually pretty, pretty rare, at least in the UK. Um, got quite excited about it, applied, I think, 36 hours later, find myself sitting with the, uh, the CEO of this family office uh, based in the Isle of Man. Uh, we had a really good chat, um, had a couple more conversations, learned a bit more about what he was looking for. Uh, and then he dropped a bit of a bombshell, which was originally there were two jobs, one in London, one in the Isle of Man. Turned out there was actually only one job and it was in the Isle of Man. <laughs> so I thought, Have well... Yeah, it was pretty. I mean, I guess I was kind of sucked in a bit, but I thought to myself, look, I'm, I'm leaving law. Uh, I uh, everyone thinks I'm insane because I was probably one or two years away from partnership. Mm. You know, why not move to a little tiny rock in the middle of the Irish Sea? <laughs> so, so I ended up doing that, um, and it was a it was a fantastic journey, actually. So originally, I said it was an investment manager role. Um, but what really happened was the guy who ran the, the family office, a guy called Dan Craddock, he's just this incredible entrepreneur, but he loves being hands-on. So we never really managed to scale the portfolio. And in fact, we really worked on just two companies. Um, so instead of it being an investment role, it ended up being an operational one. Um, and he threw me into Plan.com, which is a B2B telecoms business, and just said, go and build the sales team. So he gave me two people. Uh, go off, build it. So it took me two years, ended up with a team of 15 people, uh, five based in the field, 10 based in the desk. And at the end of that two years, we were doing great. You know, we hit all the targets we set for ourselves. But the first six months was just brutal. I had no idea what I was doing. Obviously, I was a lawyer trying to run a sales team, but that's what I enjoy, I think. You know, doing things where the learning curve is incredibly steep, uh, asking a bunch of questions and kind of figuring it out. So... I did that for two years and then he moved me to run the software development and data science team. And it was kind of a similar experience, really getting to learn the, the people there, their motivations, you know, how you get the best out of them. So did that. We relaunched a complete relaunch of the platform, outsourced a half a million dollar project to a, a outsource provider in, uh, in, in Belarus um, and did that for three years. It's interesting, isn't it? That 
sort of not having the kind of indoctrination or I don't know how you describe it, but I guess the upbringing in say sales or in say data science, but then going, having to go and run those teams, I think often looking with fresh eyes and just bringing it back to basic principles can actually be a strength. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, um, you, you know, the main thing you have to do is win the, I guess, win the trust and respect of the people that the you're, people, yeah. you're managing. And so for me, that was just, um, ask a lot of questions and actually, mm. actually figure out, you know, what, what's going on with them. And to draw a very crude kind of comparison between those two teams, the sales team was very much based on emotion. So the biggest mistake I made was I went to them and said, look, these are the sales targets for this mm. month. Please go out and, and deliver. And of course they didn't. Um, it was much more about, you know, learning what support they needed, learning what motivated them. Sometimes it was just they needed a pat on the back. Sometimes it was, actually, let's have a bit of fun in the office. Um, let's get some yeah. camera going. Sometimes it was just taking a call at 11 in the evening when they were having a personal challenge yeah. uh, in their life and helping them talk through it. So, you know, I learned mm. a lot about how you deal with it. The emotional true man part. management. Yeah, and of course, as a lawyer, there's none of that. As a lawyer, you just go yeah. to the office and do what you're told. And of course, you record every six minutes of your life yeah there's there's inbuilt accountability yeah and then the, and then the software development team was the other end of the spectrum you know the, the mostly uh, mostly guys it has to be said they wanted to be challenged and they didn't really want to talk about anything outside the office so again you know they, i was sort of managing by instant chat is uh, what it ended up being mm. there's a lot of similarities to medicine in what you described you know as doctors go up the the ranks and nurses go up the ranks and, and other professions other clinicians <laughs> You're expected to be a teacher, a manager, all these different things without any formalized training. And you just, you do just kind of have to learn on the job. And it just seems that some people are obviously better suited to, to it than others. And they end up running better, I guess, in the old definition firms or teams as it would be now. And, and it's a shame, I think. It's something that we really missed. I remember doing my master's actually in, um, in medical education. And one of the big principles that, that, in fact, all of the big principles that we were learning about education were just like revelationary to me. And I was like, oh, I, I now understand how people learn stuff. And it just made me such a better teacher to the juniors below me. And it was just, it, it was amazing that you just weren't taught those in the professions, as you say. It was just incredible to me that you're not taught how to teach. It's amazing that you're not taught how to manage and, you know, beyond the odd, like, oh, it's a Friday afternoon. Like you're going to go and sit in this lecture theater and be told how to manage people. It's, it's not, you need something far better than that, I think. And I think there's a lot of professions that had, that had gained a lot from it. You, you do. And I think the, the main thing I, so I completely agree with, with you on the, on the point about the professions, you know, how can you help? I think actually you need to give people some psychological safety. So mm. you need to let them know that it's okay to get, make mistakes, to get stuff wrong. <laughs> so true. And I think that's the one thing that, 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 that Dan and, and, and Plan.com did, did really well was that, you know, here's a load of rope. You can go and hang yourself. But when, you do, <laughs> when you do, I'm not going to have a go at you. I'm going to sit down with you, figure out why it's gone wrong, and we're going to try again. Amazing. And I think, it, as I said, it probably took me six months to have the sales team sort of where I ideally needed them to be. Um, I think in a lot of organizations, I may have been out the door or – um, I would have been moved department or whatever, but you know, his philosophy was that this is how you grow and develop. You know, you make mistakes, you fail, and then you improve. I imagine you took that forwards then into the next part of your career that, you know, that kind of learning. Exactly. So I, I met the team at Playfair. So it would have been summer 2018. I wasn't actually looking to move at that point, although I was starting to think that I couldn't spend the rest of my life on the Isle of Man. 
uh, partly because it's just pretty small, <laughs> partly because I met my uh, my wife there and she couldn't stay on the island. She's actually a surgeon, so uh, oh, nice. she couldn't continue her training on the on the Isle of Man. Um, but I met the team at Playfair and I immediately realised that this is kind of what I'd always wanted to do, which is do seed stage investing, work really closely with founders to help them build their their companies. And I guess it probably comes back to a few other things we haven't talked about. So when I was at university, I set up a, a telecoms business, uh, initially offering cheap international calls for students. And then we kind of broadened it out to, to offer it more generally. And we ended up running that from, from 14 countries. Nice. And I also started angel investing um, just after my, my secondment to Silicon Valley, where I kind of got the inspiration for it. So I'd been angel investing for 10 years when I met the team, the team here, uh, had done 14 deals, had three exits. Um, nice. I'd never really joined the dots. So I think when you take into account everything I'd done previously, I was actually quite well placed to, to, to know how to you know, find good deals, yeah. um, to lead those investments, and then obviously to help the founders. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's amazing, isn't it, that how if, if you've been angel investing for 10 years, as you say, you'd have been able to scout them, select them and support them, particularly with all those operational roles as well. And it's something that I think you can tell the investors that have had that operational experience and you can tell the investors that have been doing it a long time because I think that that experience really, really shows, particularly, I think, in the way that they support companies. And interestingly, the things that you've mentioned about learning how to manage, learning how to run those teams, learning how to look after the individuals, it all seems to, as you say, have pointed towards where you are now which is investing particularly at seed stage because i think as you go further down towards seed and pre-seed it's sort of the more generalist i guess or the more kind of jack of all trades you have to be to those founders and those businesses so i think it it seems to fit you very nicely yeah exactly and i think what i i think what i realized is that what i actually enjoy most is that 12 first sort of 12 to 24 months of growing a company mm. And I realized that partly because I, I loved angel investing and, and just found it really exciting. And partly because when I was at Plan.com, it was that first three years where I was just completely uh, involved in everything going on with the company. It was really exciting. Every time we hit a target, it was brilliant. We were very nimble. It was easy to get stuff done. And then actually when the company hit a certain size, which I think was probably maybe 80 or 100 employees. Yeah it really changes and yeah. suddenly, you know, I describe it a bit like you suddenly feel like you're walking in treacle to a certain extent. Mm. And I think that's the time where I felt my skill set was less well suited. Mm. Um, so again, as you say, I think seed stage when, you know, often founders come to us as just a couple of people, uh, maybe they've got a few early hires, but to take them on that journey up to their first 20, 30, 40, 50 employees um, is it, certainly what I find, you know, most, most interesting. You're right. It is a very different skill set. I remember one of my friends who was at Babylon at that kind of time, you know, when they tipped over that, those sorts of numbers, talked about something very similar. You know, it, it does get sort of full of bureaucrats and there's a lot of ex, ex McKinsey, ex Bain, ex these, these types of people end up coming in to add a heck of a lot more structure because it is, it is just what is required. And for those people that have been in the business for since the very early days, it, it seems strange often. I imagine that you can't get things done as quickly. You can't just make up a price. It's all got to be data driven. It's all got to be all these different things. Exactly. <laughs> I remember this one of my yeah one of my friends again at a different business at the same sort of time was um, 
uh, was saying that yeah prior they were just making up pricing structures on the tube and just just finger in the wind going oh we'll charge this much charge that much as soon as it's as you say over 100 employees series b series c funding there's enormous amounts of spreadsheets back and forth and it's just like banging your head against the wall like <laughs> why can't we just pick a price and <laughs> just set it um yeah oh, so you met yeah this is when you started playfair right so tell me about setting up playfair tell me about I'm interested in the, in the structure. I'm interested in the size. I'm interested where the money came from, whether you had to, um, whether you actually had to raise from others. So tell me about those early days of, of Playfair. Yeah, of course. So yeah, I think the Playfair story is a really, is a really fascinating one. So uh, it actually starts back in 2010. Um, so our founder and chairman, a guy called, a guy called Fede, he, um, he went off to university, he graduated, he worked for some charities and NGOs in Africa because his real interest in life is having sort of a positive impact on the world. And that's partly because he comes from a, from a wealthy family, he has sort of capital at his disposal. So his primary thing is, you know, how can I positively impact uh, the, the world? So he worked for those charities and NGOs he got a bit frustrated that he wasn't having as much impact as he wanted. You know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. They're not really that efficient in terms of uh, deploying, you know, the capital resource uh, on the ground. So he came back to London and he got involved with angel investing. And he, I think he planned to do about six deals. He ended up doing 25. And he was working a lot with um, the guys who are now Passion Capital. And they yeah. were kind of mentoring and helping him. He was working at a white Bayard. We did about 25 deals, realized very quickly that to support those founders he'd invested in, and actually even just to manage the paperwork, frankly, he needed a team around him and he wanted to professionalize what he was doing. Mm. So he founded Playfair in 2013, and he uh, was and actually still is the sole LP. So all the capital comes from him. Oh, nice. Oh, that's a lot easier. Well, you know, I think the main impact it has for us is that the 30, 40% of the time we'd be spending on the road raising from LPs, yep. spend with our founders. Yeah, I think that's nice. so. So I think that's great for founders, but it's also great for us because it's just a lot more, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more satisfying. Mm-hmm. So he ran uh, the first fund from 2013 to the end of 2018. How big was that? It was about, he deployed about 22 million pounds in the end into about 55 companies across 11 countries. So it was really really quite broad. Um, And I think it it really reflected again this sort of angel mentality that what he and the team were most interested in was the founder's story, it was the founder's sort of personality, and it was the relationship that they they could build with them. So, I'm not focused on B two whether it's B two B or B two C. No particular sector focus. It was really all about all about the founders. It's so cliched, isn't it? You know, I was I was an event um, this week. <clears throat> excuse me. For, for one of our HS events and you know someone asked me about you know if you guys are looking at an investment or people to bring into the accelerator or whatever it is you know what do you look at and it's it's so cliche to say it is about the founders it is about the team and it's it's about their motivation it's about their if they're humble it's about whether they're coachable it's about whether you just believe and a gut feel often that they are going to be the people that are best in the world to solve this problem and they're going to move and pivot through absolutely everything that's going to be in front of them and it's so difficult to kind of quantify a lot of it of, of what you're actually assessing in those meetings but i like i like how you described it as an as an angel mentality um yeah that definitely chimes with me 
Yeah, I think ultimately it, it, it is a gut feel. And I think, you know, the main difference between angel investing and now, you know, being a VC is that you still rely heavily on that gut feel. It's just you back it up with a, you know, a significant amount of due diligence um, to sort of verify that your gut feel is correct. But um, <laughs> that's absolutely still the mentality we've, we've carried through to the, to the second fund as well. So we launched that in March 2019. That is a £25 million fund. Yeah. So we have been pretty busy deploying that. We are nine deals in, um, still generalist, but with a little bit more of a focus. We really like deep tech, so kind of mm-hmm. AI, machine learning, computer vision. Yeah. And we have a preference for B2B business models or distribution models. So I'm sure we'll do a consumer deal, um, mm. but overall that, that's kind of what we're, what we're focusing on. And Check size? 300 to 500K. Yeah. Um, usually the first institutional money in, we reserve about the same again to follow on. Okay. So we'll absolutely support founders through the next the next round. Do you lead? Um, yeah. So we're really happy leading, co-leading, co-investing. Nice. I think, you know, we have a lot of flexibility in terms of, of what we can do. I think so far we've tended to lead deals in the UK because obviously the founders are close to us. Yeah, we've also invested in Israel, Singapore, and Nigeria so far. Interesting. And in those deals, they've either been co-led in the case of Israel or, or co-invest um, where it's been Singapore and Nigeria. Cool. And how much of what you do is health tech? So we've done out of the nine, we've done two health tech deals. Okay. Okay. We so never a, a proportion. <laughs> Yeah, we never set out. It's quite funny, actually, when we did. So we, the, the two deals we've done, uh, the companies are called UMED and Vine Health. And it's funny how after we did those two deals, the amount of deal flow that we got for health tech was just ramped up and yeah. everyone sort of assumes that we're a health tech fund. Yeah. We, you know what it is? It's because there's there's very few funds at seed stage that are comfortable, competent, advertise that they do it, like doing it, you know, all of the above. And so I can completely see it that as soon as people see, especially, you know, the likes of Vine Health doing a million pound seed, you know, that level of investment, it's it's rare in health tech to do those big seed rounds. It's common in the US, but I can completely understand that in the UK, um, you're definitely going to get some deal flow from that because it's what people want to be doing, you know, those kind of numbers to really start driving the sector because there are startups out there that that can spend it. They know how to spend it, but very few people that are comfortable enough to to lead those rounds and and actually, you know, put their money where their mouth is and, and be confident enough in the company. And it's definitely a gap. Yeah, and I think so. It's interesting because we we see health tech. Um, I'm not sure whether we see it differently, but the, the way we see it, we kind of we kind of split it down into what I'd call more on the sort of digitization, you know, big data, AI, machine learning side, mm. which is where the two companies uh, we've invested in, I think, predominantly fit. And then you've got the sort of diagnostics and the therapeutics, which is an area we tend not to get involved because yeah. it's a little bit outside of our area of comfort. Mm. But I think, I actually think, you know, I think the, the NHS is this sort of big elephant in the room when it comes to health. <laughs> um, you know, if your business plan is to sell into the NHS, 
I think understandably, you know, VCs get get particularly nervous, and and it is a particular challenge being based in the UK that you you have to navigate. Which of course, companies in the US where it's all private and it's profit driven, you know, they don't have to they don't encounter those same challenges. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, we talk about this on this podcast all the time, the fact that there's no such thing as the NHS even. It's just 100,000 organisations with the same logo, not the same structure. It's really difficult to prove that you're going to scale just simply because you've solved a problem in one site, just because there's so much variability between sites. The sales cycles are nine months. You know, I could go on that. There are lots of reasons why having a pure NHS business model needs a lot of explaining in an investor meeting, definitely. And I think that's why... You know, if you look at the organizations that, that you've got, you know, Vine Health and UMED, that the customers aren't just NHS organizations as part of the plan, but actually, you know, users and customers are coming from lots of different places, which I think is the diversification that you actually need to, to create a sustainable business early on, because otherwise you're going to run out of money. And arguably a reason why people need bigger sums of money, but actually there's just not that trust in the, in the business model, as you say. And I think it is, it, I don't say that with any emotion. I don't say that with any... Um, um, any allegiance one way or another but it is it just seems factual at the moment and I'm, I'm obviously a big believer in the NHS being an ex-clinician myself and you know doing anesthetics and intensive care for five years and seeing all the problems on the ground floor that need solving I just think that there are a lot of infrastructure um, changes that need to happen before investors are going to start getting comfortable with being able to scale in the NHS it's a big problem that things aren't getting centrally procured and rolled out there are good reasons for it also that that isn't the case but yeah as you quite rightly point out i think when you when you're on the investor side of the table those it needs a lot of explaining an nhs business model and i think the more that companies diversify as the as the people that you invested in have done um i think there are you're going to increase your chances to get investment i imagine and that was probably the case for those two when they came to your meetings i imagine it was, and I think um, both of them have, both prior to our investment and, and post, you know, been very, I think, smart about the way that they're figuring out which doors they can push on and which ones are opening. Mm. So, you know, as you say, you've got a big problem if your your only plan is to sell, uh, let's say, into the NHS. Um, but actually, there are multiple routes into the health service. So not only are the hospitals, you've obviously got primary care as well. There are plenty of uh, private providers of, of healthcare in the UK. There were university and academic studies going on, et cetera. Et cetera. So I think um, you have to, I think one of the things we're recommending uh, for any healthcare company now, actually, is that there is this rule of thumb that you should raise 18 months runway. And I think if it, if it's possible, we really should be looking at 24 months. Completely agree. In the case of health tech companies now, that might mean keeping your, your burn rate really quite constrained mm. in the early days and putting a lot of the, you know, the sales effort and the technical effort on the founders. But I, I think that makes sense until you can reach this confidence level, this inflection point where you understand the sales cycles and you've been able to get some deployments. Yeah, because product market fit doesn't come easily and it doesn't come quickly. And I think that's the thing, especially with deep tech, because deep tech, you're often spending most of your company resource and time actually building it. You might have done MVP, you might have done pilots, you might have done all these different bits and bobs, but particularly for, for those algorithms that just need to be con- you know constantly trained to get better and better and better. There's a, there's a lot of research and development that's going on. So um, it, yeah, it's, it's completely worth having a, a bigger runway to, as you say, just to learn the process and learn how this works integrate and to eventually 
eventually get that product market fit. I do think that's important. I mean, what do you, what do you think the other challenges are of of health tech? I guess investing from from your side of the table. I, I agree that you know looking at the NHS under uh, and their business model for the NHS is definitely under a microscope. What are the other things that you look at? Where do you see the challenges for, from the investors? Because there are a lot of there are a lot of people invest investors listen to this podcast both from funds but also at the angel level as well. Uh, and what kind of advice would you have regarding those challenges? So I think one of the biggest challenges actually is the big pharma companies because they are making a reasonable effort now to talk about engaging with startups. And I know some of them are starting sort of specific programs, but I'm not sure it's really having that much of an impact. (laughs) And for me, the culture needs to change. So there's a little bit more of a a risk-taking appetite within those organizations and a little bit of budget assigned to it as well. <laughs> so the, re- the reason I'm giggling is because <laughs> I can I can remember when I was at um, my first accelerator stage after London. I can remember, I can I can literally remember saying this in like ten meetings in a row to various different people, internal and external, that that that's what is needed. We need more <laughs> we need more risk taking, and we need to enable that risk taking by allocating some budget, and only then we can start seeing actual pilots turning to contracts and all the rest of it. So yeah, really interesting <laughs> that you started there. Well, obviously it hasn't changed then. But <laughs> the, uh... oh my god, I've been trying, mate. <laughs> behind the scenes a lot of lobbying needs to be done i can say but but i but i don't think it's that that complicated so you know one of one of the biggest things is if you're trying to put any type of uh software into it one of these big pharma companies you are generally speaking changing one of their existing workflows yeah which has been signed off by by legal by compliance maybe by a regulator so I understand the reluctance to change from that workflow, even if it's really poor and inefficient and it's probably paper-based. But, you know, let's be a bit more creative here and actually, why don't we just do a bit of A-B testing? So instead of replacing that workflow, let's just run this startups, whatever it is, application workflow process in parallel. Parallel, yeah. Another word I used to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, and let's compare results at the end because, it feels like we're kind of at loggerheads. You know, startups are saying, I've got this amazing this amazing technology that's going to save you a lot of money and a lot of time, whatever it is. And farmers going, sounds great. Oh, but actually mm. everything I've already got, I know it works and I'm not, not prepared to take the risk. Mm. So that's never going to change. Let's run these processes side by side. And yeah. I'm sure there must be budget. You know, the pharma companies must have budget um, to, to enable at least some of those, uh, those kind of A-B tests to be run. Yeah. And as a customer, pharma companies have everything that you need them to have, largely money and the ability to do things. So as a customer, they're great. And, and one thing I'd probably add, another thing that was part of my uh, blue sky thinking, call it a few years ago when I was talking about this stuff, was just then at the, at the very end of it, you had what I used to call a common sense committee, where you actually just get all of these people in the room with the ability to make a decision on the spot, force them to all hear that data in the same room at the same time, and just force them to make a decision in the room, like, are you going to go with this or that? And just, you know, really catch the people out that say they're innovative and say they want to change things and genuinely get them to put their, uh, their money where their mouth is. That was, uh, that was my thoughts anyway, way back when. And they haven't changed much, I can tell you that. I don't think so. And I think, um, 
so what I think what startups can try and do is figure out a way of making their, their product, whether it's a POC, a trial or whatever it is, yeah. try and take the risk away. So yes. if the risk is spending 20 grand, 50 grand, whatever it is on a POC, that's fine. I don't think pharma has a problem with that. Yeah, but if the risk is that it ruins a clinical trial or invalidates the result, that obviously mm. is a massive risk. So I, I do think the startups really need to do a little bit of work there on forcing the issue. Look, we'll run it in parallel. We'll do it for free or we'll do it for a low cost. Just try it out and see what the results are like. It's a really good point, actually. And I guess the broader point that I'd like to pull out there is to not make excuses. I think there's a, you know, there's the, people are understandably getting frustrated when they come across all the different roadblocks, particularly in health tech, of which there are many, and they will continue to be there. And I think what you've mentioned there is one example of not making excuses. It's actually you know that the you're lucky to to wake up in the morning with the motivation to solve a problem for whatever reason that is a that is a privilege and actually you can use that energy and harness that energy to 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 create something wonderful but at the end of the day you're going to come across these roadblocks and it's about not making excuses and it's about as the innovator innovating to find a way to do it and i can tell you that the more of those that you manage to innovate your way around you're creating a nice moat for yourself because there are very few people coming up behind you that have got all the answers and i think that's another thing in health tech if you do eventually figure out how to how to get around it you know you you wheel and deal and and scrimp and scrounge and build relationships where you can and and collect all your favors and do all these different things yeah so it does just require all of that sometimes but by doing all that there is a heck of a moat behind you that um makes you increasingly defensible let's say yeah yeah so tell me about the team at Playfair. So I'm a startup. I, I want to uh, get some money off Playfair. Who do I interact with? Who do I need to impress? What does everybody do? Tell me about, tell me about you guys and, and how you work. Yeah, of course. So uh, I'll, start with, uh, I'll start with Joe Thornton. So Joe is ex-Google and Facebook. He was actually a technical recruiter there. Solid so, top line. <laughs> yeah, so he is both an investor and our head of talent. Nice. So he spends a lot of time working with our portfolio companies. So the biggest thing that happens, one of the biggest things that happens when you raise a seed round is you've got to scale your team. And mm. he recently spent actually a couple of weeks down with, uh, with Rainer and Georgina and Brian Health, helping mm. them everything from actually identifying what you need, how do you write a great job spec, you know, where do you put it, how do you go and hunt for people, how do you conduct an effective interview, how do you then close the candidate? So kind of, he's got a playbook, obviously, which has been very successful at Google and Facebook. I think some funds will probably just send it out in a document. He actually goes um, and gets hands-on really That's involved. That's really nice. And actually that must solve such a huge problem for companies that raise Series A. You know, seven-figure sum of money hitting the bank account, all of a sudden you need to hire quickly. And my goodness, is hiring a nightmare. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably the biggest pain point for founders. Yeah. And, and of course, you're right, Series A creates a whole other wave of hiring. But actually, when you've got Series A money in the bank, your company is probably slightly better known and people are going to be more confident taking the leap to join that business. Fair. When you've just had your seed round, 
the company's not established yet, the brand's probably not well known. So I actually think that's the toughest bit. And it was true at Plan.com when I was hiring. So when I was hiring salespeople right at the beginning, it was incredibly difficult because nobody had heard of us. Mm. When we'd won the tech track, we were number one. <laughs> Everyone wanted to do this. So, <laughs> so I think um, yeah, Joe's role is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, we've then got, uh, got Henrik, uh, who's, who's an associate. Uh, he comes from Bank of America, so he's very much focused on the, on the financial side of things, but um, was also a, an entrepreneur. So we had a couple of businesses at university, uh, did a lot of crowdfunding as well. Nice. I always joke that he, he invested in Monzo. Uh, and we and we passed. So basically, <laughs> better investor than the Playfair team. But uh, <laughs> he oh, spent like, again a lot of time with, with with founders, helping them on on the financials. Which I think, particularly again at the seed stage, um, often first time founders, often technical founders, um, putting together a really compelling model for the next next round uh, is a, is a key thing they need to do. So he helps helps a lot with that. Uh, we've just had a, a an analyst join us, um, Alexandra. So she's just getting getting started, um, but she uh, has a lot of experience in sort of biosciences and actually on the health side. So she will cool. be helping um, both our existing companies and, and sourcing sourcing new ones as well. And then we have a, a, a non-executive uh, vice chairman, a guy called Simon Blakey. So he's actually been an angel investor for 20 years, uh, very successfully. Uh, and he came on board just as we launched Fund2 to help us be a bit more rigorous with our investment committee meetings, but also help with his network. Uh, and it's a kind of a nice symmetry that he was one of uh, Fede's mentors when Fede first started uh, angel investing. Mm. That's the team. Um, and we, what we try and do, I think, a little different, actually, from some funds, is that as a founder, when you engage with one of us, and of course, you could reach us in any number of ways, it could be an event, it could be a referral, it could be through our website, um, we try and get you to meet all of the team relatively quickly. And the reason we do that is because a lot of funds have habit of you meet one person, they'll talk to you for six weeks. <laughs> we really like what you're doing. It goes to IC and one partner says, oh, I don't like it. So we really try and avoid surprises and be, we probably over communicate with founders, I think, good. we engage with them. <laughs> That's really, it's really nice to hear. I think you hear a lot, don't you, that we're founder friendly and we're founder focused and we're founder first. You hear it so, so, so often in this sector, but it's nice to hear a real tangible way that you guys are. I really like that. And you're a small team as well, which I also quite like that. I imagine the decision-making is quite amicable and it's quite friendly and it's quite, um, quite agile, I guess, if you're in that small team, which must be nice. It is. Well, the, the Vine Health Investment Committee uh, happened when I was standing on a balcony of a B&B overlooking Bryce Canyon. <laughs> we are, we're pretty, uh, we're pretty, we're pretty flexible on when we do our... our oh, I love that. Love now. that. We, we talk a lot. We talk a lot together. So uh, the, the whole point is there should be no surprises. Uh, and I think, you know, one thing from a founder's perspective, you know, how, how do you know whether it's going well with a, a fund? Well, it, it kind of the, the relationship should be getting deeper. The communication should be becoming more frequent, and you should be meeting more people. For me, are kind of the key signs. If you've only met one person, and the the pace of sort of email exchanges is slow, uh, that that suggests that you're probably not getting that too much traction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how many companies do you take to your uh, investor committees, your ICs, and how um, how often are they? 
So we have an IT whenever we need to. They're not nice. scheduled. Um, Love it. We maybe I start right from the top of the funnel. So we, we probably saw about two thousand business plans decks last year. Yeah, we ended up doing nine deals. That gives you a sense of the of the mm. volume. We probably took I don't know fifty or so, maybe a little more. We discussed sort of seriously at IC. Yeah. Um, and then obviously we got through to doing to doing nine. Cool. Yeah, so on your blog, you've got something called the Playfair Wellness Programme, which you started recently. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I think we, we obviously talk a lot, as you said, about being you know, supportive of our, our founders. And we try and do a few things um, along those lines. So we have a, have a founder's dinner every uh, or twice a year. But we, at the end of last year, we did an investment in a company called, called Go Sweat, which is about bringing wellness benefits to meant to be for your employees basically so instead of having a very standard gym membership you can take advantage of i think it's about three thousand different activities so everything from yoga to boxing to ice climbing to massage the idea is it's meant to be you know a fit for anyone whatever you want to do to help with mental or physical health you can get access to this program so we did the deal, uh, we rolled it out to the Playfair team and it just got us thinking, actually, you know, founders live this really pressurized, really tough life. And actually it's a, it's a real emotional roller coaster. You know, some days you feel you're on top of the world, some days it feels mm. like you're falling apart. So we decided to roll the program out to our founders. So all our UK based founders get 50 pounds a month credit to spend on, on whatever they want. And it's good for them, I think, because they can vary the activities depending on what they, they think is going to benefit the most. And it's flexible in terms of time and location. So hopefully they'll be able to fit some of these sessions in around their, their very busy, busy lifestyle. It's quite nice, that, isn't it? Because it's almost like you're, it's, it's almost like forced holiday in a way because that's, you know, 50 quid a month, you know, you'd, you want to be spending that every month and it at least creates a day where you're going to go and do a bit of something, whether that's ice climbing, which is probably more terrifying than <laughs> running a startup. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that. Mate. It, it sounds like, and I mean this, that, that taking money from Playfair is is really valuable. It seems like a really nice team. It seems like a really uh, nice mentality that you guys have got being genuinely founder first and you guys do health tech and there are a million pound seed rounds that have got your name on them, which I like, which are very rare. So I think for those people listening, I imagine uh, they'll want to get in touch with you. So what's the best way for people listening to get in touch with you if they've got a proposal? Sure. So obviously, thank you. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. I think, you know, Fede set out with a unique culture that, you know, hopefully we're going to continue to continue to build on. So in terms of getting in touch um, through our website. So we have an open pitch form on our website. You don't need to know anyone here. You can just fill in a, a type form. There's about 10 questions, uh, upload your deck, send it through. And then one of the team will take a look at it and, and get back to you. Amazing. So Chris, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, th- thoroughly enjoyed hearing about your fund. I really, as I say, really, really like the way that it's run. Um, and I guess the way that we end these podcasts is that I hand back over to you to summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Playfair, and then to close us out with any asks that you might have of our audience. So by all means, sir, take it away. 
Fantastic. Thanks so much, James. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun doing this. So, uh, as I said, you know, we're Playfair Capital. We are actively looking for interesting tech businesses, including in healthcare. You can get in touch via our website. We'd be absolutely delighted to hear from you. We also run a number of investor office hours events. So the next one is on the 20th of February. It's actually a female founders uh, office hours event. So particular focus there. But there will be others uh, later in the year that will be open to all. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. Have a good one. Thanks very much. Cheers. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.